Before we get into today's episode, I want to pop in for a quick PSA. First, to thank you for being here listening. Thank you. Thank you. Second, to share a few words on what I'm planning to explore in this fourth year of the show. It's hard to believe it's the fourth year, but what I love about sustainable ambition is that I find it to be a topic that has a lot of depth and complexity. So there's a lot to explore. And I'll probably be revisiting some topics and going a little bit deeper. I'm going to be going deeper, for example, on what does sustainability mean and what does that look like for different people? What does it look like in terms of our societal structures or structures we can put in place for ourselves? I'm hoping to go deeper into exploring navigating ambiguity and change, which I started at the beginning of this year. I'm really interested in exploring the power of creativity and art to support us in life and work. And then I'm looking forward to exploring new or perhaps even old, actually, models of living and working that we can perhaps bring to the modern way that we are doing these things today. Another note is to just finally say, it's really important to me that the podcast be helpful and valuable for you. So if you have burning questions on sustainable ambition that you'd like me to explore, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at podcast at sustainableambition.com or leave me a voice note at bit.ly slash sapodcast dash ask. That's bit.ly slash sapodcast dash ask. Thanks. This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be ambitious and navigate work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. And I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. Do you ever find yourself exhausted or run down? Do you often feel like you have too many demands on you, but not the energy to carry on? Then you might benefit from having a resilience plan. Not to push or grind through, but to help us operate at our best. Honestly, I believe we can all benefit from a resilience plan. And that's what we're going to hear more about in this episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marie-Hélène Pelletier. She goes by MH in short, so you'll hear me use that in our conversation. MH is an award-winning workplace mental health expert, psychologist, advisor, executive coach, and speaker. She is a practicing psychologist with over 20 years of experience in clinical psychology and advisory workplace psychology and holds a PhD and an MBA from the University of British Columbia. Throughout her career in business management and psychology, MH has spearheaded a dialogue on the crucial issues of leadership, resilience, and workplace health. She has presented, authored, and co-authored a number of industry and academic publications and has won numerous academic and industry awards. She just released her book on February 6th of this year, The Resilience Plan, a strategic approach to optimizing your work performance and mental health, which we'll be discussing today. In this conversation, we talk about why we need to be proactive about managing our resilience, how we can build resilience in a strategic way, and why it's important to have a plan in place, not leaving it to chance. And while external factors can impact us, this really is important for us to take on for ourselves. And it's also helpful for those of us who are leaders to really take this seriously for our teams too. We can build team resilience as well, as MH talks about. 
Now let's dig in. I personally believe building resilience is critical for sustainable ambition. So let's learn about how to do it and the resilience plan with Dr. Marie-Hélène Pelletier. MH, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you and uh, can't wait to have this conversation. Yes. And I was very excited to read the book. As soon as I saw the title, The Resilience Plan, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to speak with her. So before we dig into the book, though, I wanted to just briefly explore your background so that people know about your experience and your expertise and kind of have that context in the spirit of what you'll be sharing and what we'll be talking about today. I just shared your background, but I would love to hear just a little bit more about like the work you do and this unique perspective you really bring because you combine this understanding and this expertise in psychology with having business experience as well and understanding how business really runs. So tell us more about your work and like what's really powerful about this unique perspective that you bring. Yes, I know. It's, it is a fairly rare, as it turns out, a rare perspective. And for me, it just happened because it made sense. I just followed my nose, literally, <laughs> did what felt like was uh, what I wanted to do next. But it did lead to me having the combined background of psychology and business. And I have worked as a psychologist, mostly with professionals and leaders. Then I've worked in management roles from junior manager, middle manager, senior manager, the most senior leader. I've done this uh, full range as well. And basically, and some people have said this to me, I translate. So I can translate psychology information in a way that makes sense to professionals and leaders here. And then I can also at times help psychologists over here understand what's going on um, in the minds of professionals and, and leaders. And it also leads to me understanding, sometimes I'll, I'll explain what I do as a work psychologist, meaning that I focus on the individuals within their work. And the individuals are still within a system so in a team and in an overall organization, my focus is on how, as individuals here, we can improve and optimize our work performance and uh, resilience and mental health. That's a great transition. As we start to get into the topics of the book, I also wanted to start with some definitions because these words can take on different meaning to different people. And perhaps maybe to me, because as I've done research in this space, I start to dig into some of the technical terms. And I sometimes think that the technical terms aren't always what ends up being used by lay people, if you will. And not to say that that's wrong. It's just I'm trying to better understand like, okay, when we use certain terms, what do we really mean? So for example, in the book, you talk about having us take control of our mental health. And I'm curious why we've started to use this term of mental health and not in like a critical way. And I understand the importance of normalizing this term too. My only concern around using the term mental health is like, does it push some people away from it instead of, you know, people moving towards prioritizing mental health, despite all the normalization around it. So I thought I'd ask you like, what's important about us using the term mental health? I don't think we have to. We can, if, if, it, makes, uh, if it makes sense. What is more important um, is that when we think about our health, we are clear that this involves three main areas, the physical health, the 
mental or psychological side of our health and the financial health. They usually are the three pillars that interact with each other and support our overall health. And within each of those, there are subcategories like spiritual health, for example, will be part of often uh, mental health. So whether we call the attention we pay to how we're doing psychologically, mental health, psychological health, resilience, it doesn't matter. What is really ultimately most important is that we pay attention to that aspect of our health. 10, 15 years ago, if you would have said someone, um, how's your health? People would have assumed it's physical. That is exactly all this is. This is clearly what we're talking about. And that's it. And it's still the case to some degree. Sometimes how's your health? We think physical. The reality is health is a broader concept. And, uh, it has many angles. This is one of them. We can name it anything we want or not at all, but we need to pay attention to it. Mm, I love that you're bringing this up and that you're reminding us of these three aspects, which I think is really important. So the second definition I was curious about was resilience, which you just mentioned. And it, it you said it is related to mental health. I'm curious, is it also related to physical health? or And then how do you define resilience? So you can have various types of resilience. Like in business, we often talk about operational resilience, which has nothing to do with our psychological resilience over here. But it is still about resilience. And in psychology, in psychology research, depending on which research approach you're looking at, it will be defined in various ways. But one fairly common definition is our ability to go through adversity and come out even stronger. So it has elements similar to back to our operational resilience here. We're wanting to make sure that our operations can sustain the sometimes unexpected, sometimes predictable, but often unpredictable demands and continue to perform and even learn from it, perform even better. That's the same for our um, psychological resilience. Around adversity, is that all negative adversity? Like, how do we think about adversity? Yes, yes. Sometimes the word that I use um, uh, there is demands. And demands can be positive things we have wanted. So the demands of a new role I've applied for and I'm now in. Um, it could also be a demand that I wish I didn't have. <laughs> Dealing with maybe an ex-partner that you still have to co-parent with and it's challenging at times, but we're still needing to do this. Point is, some demands will be positive, some demands will be ones that we would prefer not to have, but we have a combination, most of us, and all of them demand our attention, energy, focus, and all these things. In a contrast or in a ratio that we want to look at with supply. So where are we increasing? So I know we'll talk more about that. So yes. I'm definitely going to come back to demand and supply. Very important. Before we do that, I also want to just get a couple of additional questions for definitions around burnout in particular, since it's such a hot topic and people talk about it. I know some of the research when I've dug into burnout, sometimes suggest things as an example, like, hey, burnout can happen when, for example, somebody's in a toxic work environment, or it's, and you speak about this in the book, there's certain conditions that one meets around burnout. And yet, I feel like a lot of us can use the term burnout, even when like, oh, well, I'm exhausted, but we still may be burned out, right? I don't know. So how do you define burnout? Yes. Well, I, I work with, and I love what you're saying as well, it comes back to even what we started with, 
the words we use, yes, they tend to, some of them will have a formal definition. And then there is how we use them in everyday life. And I think both are useful and important. Um, and, and it will be such so in different ways, in different contexts. Burnout, as defined by World Health Organization, is an occupational phenomenon, three main characteristics, exhaustion, you've mentioned, uh, cynicism, and, uh, and then it impacts on our uh, the quality of our work, so on our performance. And you're right, very often um, in everyday life, we'll say, oh, I'm burnt out, meaning we are exhausted right? or overextended even. So the reality is that, okay, if say burnout involves these three, three characteristics, if we really want to get technical, the other important piece is that burnout is not a diagnostic. Uh, it's not a diagnosis. So it can lead to diagnosis, physical ones related to high blood pressure, other types of physical health issues, and on the psychological side of things could lead to anxiety disorders, to mood-related uh, disorders, things like this. So it leads and can lead to diagnosis, but in itself, it's not. It's an occupational phenomenon. So again, there is a technicality of the words, but possibly even more importantly, is that if you're feeling exhausted, whether you actually have the three of burnout or not, you want to pay attention. What that means is, as you're checking in with yourself, you're noticing that something's not fabulous these days. It is not the level of energy that ideally I'd like to have. It's below a certain threshold for myself. And so whether it's an actual burnout or you're meeting a diagnosis or not, this is a light flashing here. You want to pay attention to it, change things if you can, and if you don't know how to change them, connect with the resource. In all the work that you've done, what do you find often leads to burnout, especially in high-performing cultures? A good way to think about burnout is in the relationship between us as individuals and the workplace. And so sometimes what causes the burnout is a combination. Some of the ways that I think as an individual here, like I should always get done everything that's coming my way. And so it doesn't matter how what I feel I need or whatever, I'm just gonna put my head down and keep working. So there could be a bit of this. There could also be on the workplace side, putting demands that at some point are disregarding the amount that just becomes uh, impossible for any human to meet, for example. And so, and then the lack of conversation about this, the lack of protections uh, for, in this case, say the employee, to keep a level of health as we are all wanting to perform more. So sometimes it's mostly in the individual's head, a bit in the workplace, sometimes it's a lot or entirely in the workplace. But even if that's the case, we're here as an individual. So let's say even if the, the entire fault, let's say it could be established, it's in the workplace, we are still needing to take actions here as an individual, not because it's our fault, but because we're going to be impacted by it if we don't do anything. So you point us towards building resilience. So why do you believe that's what we should be doing, yeah. building resilience? I point specifically towards building resilience in a strategic way, in a way that's very unique to each of us in this moment in time. And the reason I point to resilience in a strategic way, resilience because it will allow us to navigate the demands that we're facing from 
a place of higher strength and health. We will still be impacted and all, but we're in some ways raising the baseline. And so, and the more we can be proactive in raising the baseline, the more we'll enter demanding times from this higher place and have more of a cushion in some way, a buffer to, to navigate them. And then if we've built this from a strategic place, from a unique customized place for each of us, not trying to follow a list that is impossible or doesn't work for us right now, then we will be effective at doing it. So in the book, you talk about the strategic resilience double helix. Oh, yeah. I really love this. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? Thank you for asking about this piece. In my speaking work, presentations, slides, images, analogies, all these things, I, and a lot of my individual clients often say this, you know, oh, I've got another MH analogy here or whatever. I love those. And I was researching symbols for resilience, and there are many that we've seen before, of course. But then I was looking at this one, the double e helix, and it just seemed to work in so many ways in that this is how nature plants will set up, set themselves up to be uh, tolerating even more adversity. But also it fits with our DNA that has these two strands on each side. And I was like, okay, so just like a DNA, it's very unique to each of us. I liked the two sides of it because it's extremely important that we think of our demands and sources of supply, both from a professional and personal perspective. And I liked how, okay, now they're equally important. Often, otherwise, professionals and leaders will think of their demands as in only the work demand, as if personal life is, of course, fine, whatever, over here. And it's not how it works. Um, so that's that. And then... The two strands, of course, are connected by rungs, almost like a ladder. And then there are usually four. And then I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. It actually fits with the importance that I find we need to give to our values, um, to our sources of supply and demand, to our context, and then creating a strategy. So it just seemed to be a, a visual that connected uh, in a number of ways with uh, where I think, how I think we need to, to think about our resilience. I'm going to jump in here for just a moment to give you a little bit more context about resilience, supply and demand, and the strategic resilience double helix. And I'm going to be pulling from MH's book to give you this context. So in the book, MH writes, quote, you can think about your overall resilience as a ratio of your supply versus your demands. And she goes on to say, supply here refers to the ways in which you increase your health and energy. She then goes on to define demand. Quote, a demand is anything that requires energy from you, whether it is something positive that you have wished for or something negative you would rather not have. So again, your overall resilience being this ratio of your supply versus your demands. Pretty simple, right? So then she just described the strategic resilience double helix, but I wanted to come back to it because... I know it might be a little bit hard to get into one's mind and then how it relates to the resilience plan. And in our conversation, I didn't prompt her and go back to this with her. So I thought I'd jump in here and just give you, as I said, a little bit more context. So she writes in the book, resilience is not a given. It is a strategy. And you need a custom strategic resilience plan. A plan as unique as your DNA. 
And then she goes on to describe that double helix that she was talking about. Quote, each DNA molecule has two linked strands, like the sides of a ladder. The rungs on that ladder are constructed from four chemical bases. In your strategic resilience plan, you also have two linked strands, your personal life and your professional life. These are the sides of your ladder. And the four bases that form your ladder's rungs are your supply, your demands, your values, and your context. So this is where MH talks about in the book and in our conversation how those sides of your ladder, your personal life, and your professional life, we don't always realize that both of those put demands on us. That's why she has those as part of her model. She then also talks about the rungs of the ladder, the supply, your demands, your values, and your context. And she goes on in the book to talk about how these are the elements you want to look at as you're creating your resilience plan. So she writes, as you create your strategic resilience plan, you will need to gain insight into those bases, your sources of supply, what gives you energy, your sources of demands, positive ones included, both in the present and in the future, your values, what is most important to you, your internal and external contexts, and how these influence both support and challenge your goal of increased resilience. So with that as added context, let's get back to the conversation where I've asked MH why context was an important part of the model and one of the four bases that form your ladder's rungs. Here's what happened, how this emerged is as I said, I work a lot with professionals and leaders. And frankly, very often they'll come to me and they'll say, MH, I don't know what my problem is. I've always had the level of demands that I've had that I have right now. I've always been able to manage this. I have no idea why right now it's not working, but it's not working. So we need to figure it out to figure it out. And then we talk more about it and everything. And of course they're aware, like all of us, that yes. We would increase our resilience, for example, if we exercised five times a week for half an hour, if we meditated, if we did some strength training, if we slept well, all these things that we, we know. And they're, they're actually true. They're based on research. But it's the implementation that's a problem. And so in speaking with uh, one of my clients one day to help them see the logic of this, I said, okay, in your business, if you're about to launch a new product, do you just say, got a great idea, it's well-developed, I know all the things, let's launch it? Or do you have all this and you say, now let's see what's happening in the market. Who else is offering this? How much are they charging? Who is buying this? What forces may impact where this market is going? What are emerging trends happening in the next two, five years? Of course, you're looking at this. You're looking at the context. And often we'll, we'll use even tools like a SWOT analysis, right? The strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, both from the internal and external context in a business sense. And so then I brought it back here and I said, this is the same thing. We need to take into account the reality of your context, what's happening internally for you, like what's your personality style, how you are naturally internally, and what's around you. Do you live at a place where you can actually step outside and walk or no? Any walk would involve getting in the car, driving on the highway, and then going for a walk, for example. When we consider the context in a realistic way, then we can build a strategic plan here that will make sense and be doable, as opposed to, oh yeah, I wish I could exercise five times a week and I'm not doing it. Then it becomes... 
I'm going to exercise in my place because I cannot go somewhere easily. I will do it using an app once a week. I'm going to use it uh, working with a, a trainer from a distance or at a gym once a month. And then that plan is something that works for you. So that's why the context uh, is so important. So important. And I can imagine, I want to take a step back because before we get into like developing a plan, I can imagine that some people might actually be like, why are you telling me to even focus on resilience? Like, I'm fine. You know, I can manage through. Like, why do I really need to proactively manage my resilience? Or like, why do we have to like systematically recharge? So the if you have these naysayers or these doubters, if you will, which I'm sure you've had MH, I'm sure you've never heard that. <laughs> um, how do you kind of convince them or enroll them, get them on board with like, look, you do need to invest here and we need to put together a plan for you? Yes. I mean, ultimately, if someone is not you know, at a place where they cannot see a logic or a need for it right now, that's okay. Sometimes there are things in life we need to learn from experience, <laughs> you know, feel it. And then we say, okay, fine, I need it. Uh, so sometimes it's just the way it is. But if um, you're on the fence, perhaps, um, the reality is if you're, um, you look at the past, whatever, year to five years, you know, that range, and you look at tougher moments you've had, particularly professionally, just lots going on, things not working well, transition, difficult, any moment that was a bit more on the challenging side. Most people can identify ways in which it impacted them. For example, it may have led to them being more impatient with, usually it starts with people closer to them, not at work, keep it together there <laughs> until a certain point, but usually it starts with our personal lives or even going to the coffee shop and being very abrupt with the barista for absolutely no reason and not the way we usually would want to be. So they'll see, you'll see how it impacted perhaps your impatience, or it may have impacted your ability to concentrate where you used to be able to go through a report quickly, it's all in, you're moving on. And now you need to oh, reread because nothing has come in. You've seen the impact on your concentration. Okay. Maybe you've seen the impact on your decision making suboptimal decisions. You've seen things fall through the cracks way more. Um, and, and really what this is showing is you've seen that slide a little bit, and maybe it has been sliding even more. Maybe it has actually impacted the quality of your work. It maybe has scared you a little bit because you're here because you've built this for many years. At some point, it may lead to professional errors. It may hurt your brand, what you've built over the years. And so sometimes the people, people will see that they want to invest in their resilience because they know it will optimize how they feel, how everything works and everything is going to be better for their contribution and their enjoyment of bringing these contributions. But there's also the, the you know, it's a carrot and stick kind of thing. There's the benefits, but there's also the risks if you don't. All great stuff. And to raise that awareness, and it really takes a checking in and kind of pausing to reflect. The other thing I wonder about is oftentimes when people start to feel suboptimal, we can also point the fingers at the work environment, yes. at 
some of the context, right? And you talked about it earlier and alluded to it, which is why do we need to take responsibility for this ourselves? Like, even though, yes, some of those demands could be and often they are, there are work demands. We know that. We also know there are life demands. But why is it so important for us to take responsibility for our own resilience? And, and I would say it's, we're not taking responsibility for problems or difficulties that are happening from outside of us, the system, our team, our organization, other things going on here. What I'm saying is even if, all the responsibilities outside. Yes, we want to to take action here, take as much of the control that we have access to, because if we don't, let's say we, we're here and we say, yeah, no, it's all the workplace. It's their problem, their fault for them to change. It's not me. There isn't a problem with me here. I'm going to tough it out until they figure this out or they change it. The problem with this is that this environment will continue to have an impact on you. You cannot just stay there and expect that you're not going to get impacted. You will. So even if none of this is your fault, and it's often very frustrating for here, the individual, because we usually have worked hard to get here. There is usually a number of reasons why we want to stay here. Sometimes we love the team. We love the work. We love the role. We love the industry, the role we play in it, many things. And so it will make people stay. And part of the challenge is that whether you call this resilience, psychological health or mental health, it's not something we can decide. You cannot just say, I will be here, tolerate this and not be impacted by it. It's just not how it works. It would be similar to saying, I'm going to cross this river and I will not get wet. No, you will. It is the context, you will be impacted by this context. And yes, you can put many protections to support you, like doing all the resilience building activities, like exercising, seeing friends and all these things. There is still a degree here of impact that is impossible to match with enough resources. And so that's why I'm saying we need to increase our resilience as high as we can, because we'll need to make decisions. We'll need to either see if we can either tolerate this, how long can we, or influence it to change enough for it to be okay for us, or get clarity that we need to get out. That makes a lot of sense. So your book is called The Resilience Plan. And I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about like what's so important about having a plan, and then what does a resilience plan look like? I know. What's so important about having a plan is that if we do not have a plan, we are unlikely to take action because we'll be so busy with other things. It's not very different from, let's say, if you and I decide that we want to really bring meditation even more in in our lives. We could just talk about it, say we love meditation or would like to bring it, and that's it. This is not a plan. If we have a plan, then... I might, for example, decide that I will, before each lunch, spend two minutes doing deep breathing for two minutes for this week, and this is what I will do. Now, what that means is tomorrow, when lunchtime happens, I don't have a choice. I'm not wondering what to do. I'm not deciding to skip lunch or do emails instead. I have a plan, and I'm following it. So it will give me direction. It will maintain this intention of actions in moments where I could be distracted by all kinds of other things. 
and it will ensure I implement, right? So that's why we very much uh, need a plan. Now, do you want to need to share with you a bit how that can look like? Sure, that would be great. And I use there the same logic that if you're in a business and some of your uh, audience will have been there, but if not, all of us can relate to it. If we're in a, a business context and we're about to move into a new phase for our organization, usually organizations will have a strategic plan. They will have a goal. Let's say, let's increase our client base by 10%, whatever I'm inventing. And then they'll design a way to get there. And the strategic plan will usually have, let's say, three pillars, three main directions. And then each pillar will have tactics or actions that lead to this pillar getting implemented, leading to us reaching the goal. So same logic here, depending on where you're at. Usually at the beginning, people will have a goal of increasing my resilience further. And then after having done the reflections and the work of identifying your sources of supply and demand, identifying uh, elements of your context, getting even more clarity on your values. Once you have all this information, then you can craft this plan. So I'll give you an example. Let's say someone, just at a high level, I'll name a few, a few pieces here, but let's say they've identified that they've got tons of demands at work. Okay, sources of supply, not very much. They tend to eat healthy most of the time, but they have skipped meals and you know it's not that easy. Values, they value family, they value health. We usually would list many more values, but I'll just give a couple to give examples. Context, they don't have access to a gym. They don't have time to go to the gym. They won't go to the gym right now. They would like to spend more time with family. They see that they're not, it irritates them, it makes them sad, okay. So potentially for this person, their strategic resilience plan may have a pillar called family. They may have a pillar called health and they may have a pillar called boundaries. And within their family pillar, they may say, each time I work from home and any of my family members is knocking on the door, if I'm not in a meeting or, you know, I'll leave my door open, maybe let's say they come in. I'm actually going to stand up from my desk and make sure I'm there with them. So not just, oh, I'm busy trying to finish this. Family is important for me. I'm not in the meeting right now. I'm turning. I'm taking the opportunity. That's an example. Uh, in, in their health pillar, they may say, okay, what I can realistically do right now, because I don't think I can do anything, is once a day I will step outside, alarm on my phone, and breathe for two minutes balcony, window, door, whatever, but that's all I can do right now and I'm gonna do it. Cause I can't, this is realistic given everything else, okay? And maybe in the pillar of boundaries, they'll look at their schedule for the next month and identify which day they can be very firm on when they stop working, as opposed to always extending based on what's there or what they feel they need to have. So that's an example of how that can look like, but you see how personal to each of us this will be. I love how this is like a realistic resilience plan and that I appreciate that you are demonstrating how it doesn't have to be big things that like small things that align to our individual values can really add up and make a big difference for our resilience. Now, you also noted that what's really important is that it's personalized. Can you say a little bit more about why that's so important? We've tried in some ways, right? We read articles, we read lists. I mean, sometimes I'm sure you and your audience get this. Sometimes I open my email and I have 
an email from a very renowned uh, place telling me the 20 things that need to be done to increase my resilience. And I'm always interested, so I look. And yeah, they were great, but it's 20 things. And I'm not, even I, I'm not going to read these 20 articles. I do not have time to implement 20 things with five recommendations each. So there is a ton of information out there. And it is immensely better to have one very small action that we implement, or three, let's say, than to have a list of 25 that we cannot get to. So that's the that's because it's going to move us into action. And action obviously leads to changes. But we also know from research that when we take action, technical term is active coping, <laughs> we increase our self-efficacy, our belief that we can impact this situation. And self-efficacy will then build and grow to a belief that we can impact not only this now, but this in the future. And that's optimism. Or, and not impact just this in the future, other things in the future, and that's agency. So the importance of identifying small actions that make sense for each of us, personalized, so they're very doable, it has many very positive impacts and, and allows us to implement and implement in a sustainable way. So important. And I can imagine people still are like, I have a full schedule. Yes. <laughs> like, how do I fit this in? And yet we're talking about these small actions and really making them doable. And yet I'm also curious, like, if it's almost as if those self-care kind of actions that people people often end up deprioritizing and they still can't really get to. So I'm almost like, how do you make your resilient plan resilient? Like, how do we get ourselves to truly stay committed to some of these even smaller actions? Like, do you have, I know there's habit practices and things like that, but do, are there other tips that you kind of point people towards to kind of help them in that regard? Well, number one, those a strategic plan, same as in business, will evolve over time. So let's say the example I gave you earlier with these actions, okay, setting better boundaries to end work, taking my breaks when I'm talking, say, to a family member, they say, once I've implemented them a few times, I'm likely now enjoying this because I chose them because they were connected with my values. So I will quite likely want to continue to do them and they will now be part of what I do. Maybe then I'm ready to renew my re resilience plan and create a new actions to consider. So if it gets to a point where it feels like this is not what I need anymore, we can change it. It's okay. It, it, it needs to make sense. In one of the workshops I gave, uh, one of the people in, in the audience said, you know what my action is? <laughs> and they were a group of fairly senior leaders. He said, I have health on my list and I have not had a check-in with a physician for over seven years. And the person was at a stage of life where we do want to check in every at least two years, if not every year. And he said, that's my action. So for him, his action will be taken. He'll then do it probably uh, now on a yearly basis. He's ready for his next one after. So it made sense to him in his context. He's going to do it. He's like, oh, that is very doable. And then you can move to the next thing. What I hear in what you're sharing, too, is just pulling the thread of you've really designed the approach that you have in the book to eliminate resistance. 
really. It's kind of like, how do we align things so that it's tied to your values, that we make it doable, that it's personal to you, that it's taking into consideration the context, all these different factors and what you spoke to earlier, all those benefits of starting to take action and seeing the benefits really helps to lock it in. So I really appreciate what you're sharing around that. Oh, thanks for saying that. That is very much... You know, when you write a book, this is my only book, probably will be my only book. I've given it all I got. But part of the uh, recommendations and, you know, approaches that I had heard was how are you going to take your reader from where they are to where they need to be? And what I'm sharing is what I've done many, many times with people who have come to me for support. And that's that's what they found as well. So thrilled to hear this. That's the idea. And it's also a fairly concise book. If you've got a long flight, you can get through the book and get your plan figured out and get off the plane with your plan. So I can confirm that. So <laughs> having gone through the book, so it is definitely a good airplane ride read. So before we close, and I have some final questions for you, I do just want to touch upon this topic of organizations and leaders and teams, just because, you know, despite us saying this is an individual exercise, we should build our resilience. As you said, most of us are operating within a context. And some of my listeners are definitely leaders and they are wondering, how do we support people? So what do you see as the role of organizations and leaders? And what does it look like to kind of support team resilience within an organization? Ah, beautiful question. Love it. So the first thing I will still say is walking the talk is possibly the strongest message you can send as a leader. So as you're taking care of your own, sharing that you do and why you're doing it will also build team resilience because you're, um, as a leader, want it or not, sometimes we don't think of ourselves as such a model or whatever. It's not. But the structure makes us a person that more people will look at in terms of how we do things, by definition. So that would be something. Now, in terms of ways in which we can build resilience. One of the angles we can take is building psychological safety uh, in the workplace, doing things that will allow the team to uh, build their strength as a team and go through adversity as a team and come out even stronger. Things you can pay attention to. You want to look at the overall workload situation and don't tune me out immediately. I know workload, usually I say this and people are like, but we cannot change it. <laughs> yes, we often need to keep the content the same, but we can often have conversations about which parts are the largest irritants. Where can we find little cracks, little doors, opportunities to optimize a flow somewhere that will make it easier for people? So workload is one area. I'll just give you some examples. Building community even more. Um, it connects with on the personal side. We want to connect with our relationships here at work as well. We know this from research. Um, other themes, making sure that you're optimizing as much as you can, uh, recognition and reward. We have solid research showing that when we're doing more recognition and reward, we are increasing psychological health and safety. You want to give people uh, as much influence and control. Actually, it reminds me of a very interesting study that Adam Grant and one of his colleagues did, because you're asking about leaders, and I, I love it because I think it's a really good illustration. They were comparing, if you're a leader, 
Are you going to have more impact on psychological safety if you seek feedback about your performance, if you share constructive feedback you've received about your performance, or both? And in their study, it's actually sharing constructive feedback. Part of the problem was the seeking feedback because they were defensive, so it actually didn't help. But you're wondering what to do as, as a leader to increase that psychological safety, that resilience, the fact that we're all in this, we're all needing to take care of our blind spots at times, share your own. That may be a very strong way to do it. So there, there are a number of factors like this that we can look at. These are some examples. Oh, I love this. And a great place to start to point people to start to think about building resilience, not just for themselves, but for their teams as well and their organizations. So this topic of resilience is one that I'm really passionate about. And I really loved the book. I'm curious for you, what is your ambition for the book? And what's your hope for the impact it's going to have in the world? I wrote it for this message to be in as many hands as possible, as early as possible. So I very much wanted to go to university bookstores, to career centers. I want it to be in leaders' hands, leader development, so that wherever we're at, we can catch this because if we're reading about it earlier, we can, we can see it, which means, yes, translated in many languages so that it reaches uh, as many people as possible. I really appreciate this as an ambition, just in terms of, A, of course, getting it into as many hands as possible, but really starting with young folks and helping them understand how important it is for them to build their resilience. Such an important message, especially today. I'm curious, do you have a favorite thing right now that is on your resilience plan? Yes, I apply my own <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> I do. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I need to adapt to them. For a lo very long time, well, for a long time, I was not doing meditation. Then I started very short ones. And only recently, I've increased it by five minutes. So 15 minutes now. It feels like a holiday each time. It's, I don't know, for me, it's just uh, the difference between 10 and 15 has uh, been significant. So it's one and I yeah, I'm quite enjoy this. Well, I know you so generously are offering people to receive a chapter of your book yes. at your website, theresilienceplan.com. Is there anywhere else you want to point people to find you or is that the best place? That's the best place because it will lead to everything. So uh, theresilienceplan.com leads to everything. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear uh, from people there and I do a number of things there that um could allow you to add your voice to the conversation, right? If some posts make sense to you, then you're adding your own comment, your own voice, and then that reaches even more people, which ultimately we'll all benefit from. I appreciate that, yes. Well, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the book and putting the effort in to get it out into the world. And as you're saying, it is an accessible thing that can really pay dividends for people. So MH, thank you so much for today and, and for the work that you've done on the Resilience Plan. Thank you, great conversation, Kathy. I hope you're now convinced that we can all benefit from a Resilience Plan especially for those of us who are ambitious about life and work and want to avoid burnout. I thought I'd just call out a few things that popped for me from today's conversation, really so much, but even starting at the beginning with just MH calling out and reminding us that there are multiple types of health. We often only think about physical health, but to remember that 
mental, psychological, resilient, whatever word you want to use, that that's critical in addition to financial health. All of these different types of health are really important in terms of our well-being. I appreciated hearing MH's perspective on burnout. And again, regardless of what's causing it, regardless of what term we use and whether or not we meet the official term from the WHO, really, I appreciated that she is just acknowledging, again, any sign that we might be on the border of burnout or we're feeling exhausted, whatever cues we might be feeling, to really pay attention to that and how we're feeling. And then to take some responsibility and ownership for making some changes to support ourselves and to build more resilience. Around resilience plans, I really loved that she emphasizes the points that this needs to be personal and it needs to be realistic. And I really loved hearing her examples of these small things that we can do to build resilience. I love her whole approach to the book because she really is wanting to make this accessible to people and to help people realize that this is something that they can fit in to their days. And finally, I won't summarize all of these, but I really appreciated all the different tips that she gave around how we can build team resilience and all the different variables that are open to us to help do that. So for those of us that are operating in teams, whether you're a leader or you're just a part of a team, I think it's helpful to take many of these elements that she was mentioning and take them into consideration in terms of how you might be able to bring these into your team behaviors and structures. So I'll ask you, what about for you as you reflect on today's conversation? What really spoke to you? What might be something you want to do to start building your resilience today and tomorrow and beyond? So with that, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with MH and are now inspired to create a resilience plan for yourself. And I hope you're inspired to also check out our book. I will be back in two weeks with a new story of sustainable ambition. And in the meantime, make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. You can sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. Be well, everyone, and be resilient.